This is the Daily Signal podcast for Tuesday, August 1st. I'm Virginia Allen. Ukraine's counteroffensive has come to the streets of Russia. Over the weekend, a drone struck an office building in Moscow. And now, Russian officials say if Ukraine's counteroffensive succeeds, they would consider the use of nuclear weapons. Victoria Coates, vice president of the Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy at the Heritage Foundation, joins us here on the show today to talk about what transpired in Russia over the weekend and what America's responsibility is to Ukraine moving forward and how the U.S. has handled the entire war from the beginning. She says if she was calling the shots, she would have done things a little bit differently. So stay tuned for Victoria Coates' analysis on the war in Ukraine after this. The Heritage Foundation is the most effective conservative policy organization in the country. Every semester, our interns are a vital part of that mission. We pay competitively, we develop talent, and we give our interns access to some of the sharpest minds in the country. We're going on offense, so join us. To learn more about the Young Leaders Program here at the Heritage Foundation, please go to heritage.org intern. It is my distinct privilege today to be joined by the Heritage Foundation's Victoria Coates. Victoria is the vice president of the Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy here at Heritage. Victoria, thanks for being back with us. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, we are diving in to news regarding Ukraine, Russia, and the latest. So over the weekend, what we saw was that there were drone attacks in in Russia and we're slowly kind of learning more and finding out more about what these attacks were. Um, we've seen that uh, there, there were reports of three drones going into Russia. And there's one specific drone uh, that hit a skyscraper in Moscow. Has Ukraine claimed responsibility for these drones? Yes, they did today. And that's a, that's a, a big change from what we've previously seen, which is that if they did launch these things, they just sort of let them take off. And, you know, it was sort of shrouded in mystery. But President Zelensky and his top advisors have said that they consider it a perfectly legitimate response to what has been a pretty grievous uh, Russian provocation and attacks on civilian targets in, in Ukraine. So one can understand their their logic there. The problem we have, though, is President Biden has made attacks on Russian targets using American material, uh, sort of a red line for him, something that he had very clearly laid out to President Zelensky he was not to do. And if they have done that, and we don't know what the makeup of the drones are or what else they may choose to do, but certainly we have no way of controlling the American arms that have gone into Ukraine. And I think rather shamefully, the Senate voted against establishing an inspector general for Ukraine just last week which would have been an important tool for us to provide that oversight that the Ukrainians who are in a shooting war can't really do. Okay. All right. Well, I want to dive a little deeper into that in just a moment. I do want to get your reaction to something that Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov said following the drone attack. He said the counteroffensive is not going as planned, so Ukraine is opting for targeting civilian infrastructure. What is your response to that? Are we going to see more of this, do we anticipate, from Ukraine, where they're not only trying to hit targets within Russia, but they're specifically targeting civilian uh, infrastructure? 
It's certainly possible. And the fact that Zelensky is comfortable taking responsibility for it, you know, that kind of development suggests we might be moving into an escalatory period around this this counteroffensive. And one interesting thing about the counteroffensive is they are actually taking back ground around Bakhmut, that town that was the big strategic uh, sort of prize that mm. the Wagner Group took a couple of months ago. And uh, the chief of Wagner, Yevgeny Prigozhin, really celebrated this as his great victory. Well, that's being clawed back. And it's slow. Uh, it's extremely violent. There's there's recent footage from the battlefield, which if you blur your eyes, you have to think you're looking at, at World War One. Hmm. You know, so Putin's kind of trying to take us back a century here. But the Ukrainians are making progress. So that's that's encouraging. How significant is that progress? I remember the last time we had you on was maybe a couple months ago and the counteroffensive, everyone had been talking about it, but it still hadn't started. Mm -hmm. And so now it's it's obviously launched. It's in full swing. Is it what you expected? Is it as aggressive as you think it needs to be, as it should be in order for Ukraine to put Russia in a position where, where they really are hurting and where they might come to the negotiating table? Well, certainly, I think the Ukrainians are doing everything they can. I mean, they've displayed great bravery and, you know, they've enjoyed very significant U.S. support. You know, that said, the Russians are throwing a ton of men and a ton of equipment into this fight. This is their general strategy to just wear down their opponents. I do think the fact that Ukraine has has seemed to sort of tip the balance of gravity a little bit and start pushing back is very important. Whether they'll be able to make enough progress quickly enough uh, to put the kind of pressure on Russia that you describe, we don't know that yet. Uh, and as with any plan, it generally doesn't survive first contact with the enemy. So you have to expect the unexpected. Yeah, yeah. How is Russia responding after this? Is Putin saying anything? Well, through his sort of uh, lead henchman, Dmitry Medvedev, who's the one who used to cycle through the presidency when Putin still paid lip service to democratic mm-hmm. institutions, uh, so is, is very much a, a, a Putin pawn, uh, if yeah. you will, did make the uh, statement over the weekend about potentially using nuclear weapons mm-hmm. if the Ukrainian counteroffensive is successful. Now, in some ways, this is nothing new. The Russians have been brandishing nuclear weapons now for oh, well over a year. Uh, and and trying to use that as a tool of coercion to damp down support for Ukraine. And I think in this case, they're very clearly signaling that the United States or NATO should get a handle on these these pesky Ukrainians and stop them from being as aggressive in their counteroffensive uh, as they might want to be. Now, it's always been my opinion that we are probably not going to influence Putin's decision making <laughs> on nuclear weapons. I think he's decided uh, whether or not he's going to use them. All we can do is really signal unambiguously that it is unacceptable for a nuclear weapon of any size to be uh, to be detonated in Europe, because if we go down that road, we wind up where we are in Syria, for example where we have almost normalized the use of chemical weapons uh, after President Obama made them a red line and then didn't follow through back in 2013. Mm -hmm. Obviously, a lot can happen in such a short period of time. So given what we know now and maybe looking at just the next couple months, what is the likelihood that we would see a nuclear weapon used? You know, it's been possible from the beginning. I've never considered it a particularly likely uh, 
turn of events, I think that Putin has to know that this would be, you know, a, a real Rubicon for him, that he would not be able to come back from that. It is not clear to me how the Russian people would respond. It's not something you can really hide from them. And if the response from the United States is what it should be, in my mind, you know, the truly crushing economic sanctions that this administration has been unwilling to put into place, which in my opinion, we should have done well over a year ago, uh, put put very serious consequences on on Putin and by extension, uh, his Chinese bankers. And so, you know, this would be a very difficult, painful thing to do. But it is our kind of overall leverage against him if we don't want to get into a ground war in Europe against Russia, which I think we could all agree is not a desirable outcome. Why haven't we gone after pulling the full leverage and just putting on all of the sanctions on Russia that we could have? Sadly, it's domestic energy prices in the United States. the Biden administration actually wants the Russian products to keep moving. They tacitly said as much when uh, when Prime Minister Modi was here a couple of, of weeks ago that instead of pressuring India to stop importing Russian oil and then uh, processing it and then selling it to Europe as an Indian product, which can be done under current EU regulations, instead of pressuring them to stop, the administration basically said we are willing to countenance this, this is okay, uh, as long as you know the the uh, energy prices around the world don't spike. So that would be part of the pain, which would be real, that we would incur. But we might get to the end of the war and get there a lot faster. I Much say. faster. Okay, so let's circle back. Let's dive into a little bit of U.S. policy towards Ukraine right now. What we are doing, mm-hmm. what we should be doing, and what we shouldn't. Be doing? Where do things stand right now? We know recently heard we sent cluster bombs over to Ukraine, and they've already started using those, correct? I believe so. Okay. Uh, that that all moved pretty quickly because we have a lot of cluster bombs due to the fact that both the Obama and Biden administration have avoided using them because they considered them uh, a, a grave threat to civilians. And the problem is, is that Putin is already using them. Uh, so this might have been something we could have considered a year ago. Uh, if we did want to actually arm the Ukrainians effectively and win the war, if that were the goal, uh, doing it now, you know, just seems kind of piecemeal hmm. the way everything else has. And, you know, they're they're talking about the F-16s now, which is something Ukraine has repeatedly uh, re- asked for. The heritage position is that given the time it takes to train folks up on that on that plane, that it's in a couple of other considerations that's not a great answer for Ukraine right now, but the president's pattern seems to be that they'll make a request, he'll wring his hands for somewhere between six weeks and three months and then agree to send it hmm. uh, to, to try to score some political points. But the really it's significant thing for our listeners that I think everybody has to be on the watch for is how they're going to approach the next supplemental funding request. Okay. Because the Pentagon found two pots of money in the couch cushions over the summer, totaling about $10 billion, which allowed them to get through the summer without asking for more money, which means engaging the duly elected representatives of the American people, explaining what they want and why, and laying out a strategy, all of which they've they've avoided. And now it looks shamefully like they are going to try to attach Ukrainian supplemental to the uh, disaster relief 
uh, must-pass funding appropriations vehicle for the uh, for FEMA. So this is this is hurricane relief uh, going into hurricane season. So in essence, you are holding U.S. citizens hostage uh, to funding for Ukraine because it, it would have to be a pretty pretty singular member of Congress, particularly one who is in a hurricane vulnerable uh, state, to vote against this going into what is supposed to be an active hurricane season. And it's just it's shameful. Uh, if they if they want more money for Ukraine. They should let it stand on its own merits. And if I were the Ukrainians, I would be lobbying against this. I mm-hmm. wouldn't want my security to be linked to domestic U.S. spending. Mm-hmm. Victoria, you live in the weeds of this issue mm-hmm. like few people I know. And it's so, so helpful to have your analysis. If you were calling the shots on this and you were laying out, OK, this is how we can move forward, how the U.S. can effectively move forward in you know seeing this war brought to an end, but also while being responsible to U.S. interests, what would your recommendation be? Well, I think I would have handled it differently from the get-go. I think I would have yeah. gone back uh, when it was clear it wasn't going to be a three-day war. I would have convened a NATO stum- summit right then and there and made clear that this was going to be a much longer-term endeavor than we expected. It is a European war and that we expect the large economies of Europe not only to honor their 2014 pledge uh, for NATO funding, but also to shoulder the majority of the burden for this war, that the United States would provide military assistance as appropriate, and we would certainly do that robustly if there was a real chance of defeating Putin, uh, but that the civil society costs and a significant amount of the military costs should be borne by Europe uh, because you know we are also a Pacific power. We have to prepare for China at the same time the Europeans have not been particularly forward-leaning or robust in their support for the United States in, in the event of a conflict with China. So we have to be mindful about that. And so I think I think figuring out you know, what it would actually take to deal a, def- a clear defeat to Russia uh, early on in the war was maybe the cardinal sin. And mm. now they seem, the administration seems to be kind of accepting of a of a stalemate. And that, that in a way, is the worst of all worlds. Yeah. So what is our responsibility to Ukraine at this point, given the decisions that have been made that now we have to live with? How do we move forward? Well, we're under no legal obligation uh, to do any of this. Uh, the problem with the so-called Bucharest Memorandum of Understanding from the 1990s, which was supposed to guarantee Ukraine's security uh, on the joint assurances of the United Kingdom, the United States, and and the Russian Federation, it wasn't binding. And so Russia felt perfectly comfortable violating it any number of times, uh, both with the seizure of Crimea and now with the full invasion. And so that also is not binding on the United States. I think we have interests in Ukraine. It's a large country with significant resources, you know, and, and, and has potential to be a very important friend and ally to the United States if it can go through its own process of modernization and sort of maturation. So there are reasons to be interested in Ukraine. Uh, but how far the American taxpayer is prepared to go uh, you know, in this war to which we are not a party on a continent that we don't live on, 
uh, you know, that that is a question that hasn't really been put fully to folks. And, you know, through through their representatives, they haven't been able to weigh in. And that's that's where I think you see some real concerns. Yeah. Yeah. Victoria, any final thoughts before we let you go? Things that the American people really should be aware of as we continue to hear a lot about this in, in the news. And, and my thinking is while Congress is out in the month of August, there's probably going to be a lot of focus on Ukraine in the news cycle. How should we be thinking about this conflict? I really think right now it's follow the money. Uh, it's how how is this funding request going to be handled and what will the American people tolerate in terms of, of Ukraine? And then certainly if President Zelensky is serious about coming to New York for the United Nations General Assembly in September and he does have a sort of a peace plan to put on the table, you know, that would certainly be a significant development. And uh, especially if they're able to make some at least moderate gains on the battlefield during August. Excellent. Victoria Coates of the Heritage Foundation. Victoria, thank you for your time today, as always. Thank you. And with that, that's going to do it for today's episode. Thanks so much for joining us. If you would like to hear more from Victoria Coates and specifically her analysis on the war in Ukraine, be sure to check out both the Daily Signal website at dailysignal.com. And you can also find all of Victoria's research and her writing at heritage.org. If you haven't had the chance to check out our evening show, be sure to do so. It's right here in this same podcast feed where we keep you up to date on all of the news of the day. And make sure to take just a moment to leave us a rating and review wherever you like to listen to podcasts means a lot to us and helps us keep spreading the word to more listeners. Thanks again for being with us today. We'll see you right back here around 5 p.m. for Top News Edition. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive producers are Rob Bluey and Kate Trinko. Producers are Virginia Allen and Samantha Asheris. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. To learn more, please visit DailySignal.com.